American nationalism has always been seeded um, with very important ideals, including individual liberty and constitutionalism. But if if we hadn't had this strong nationalist thread running throughout our history, uh, we would have fallen apart right at the beginning, and no one would have cared very much about. Um, well, there wouldn't have been a United States of America. So no one would have cared very much about it, and our ideals would have been discredited. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Welcome to the Code Red podcast. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. Our special guest today is Rich Lowry editor of National Review, syndicated columnist, and frequent guest on radio and television public affairs programs. Welcome, Rich. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Rich is the author of an important book, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. As we begin this discussion, the United States is in a wide-ranging debate over when to lift the coronavirus lockdown. You recently wrote a column criticizing lockdown extremists. Can you share with us your thoughts on the subject? Yes, I basically supported the lockdowns. Initially, I thought trying to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed made case, made sense. This was a highly infectious disease, largely unknown. Um, so it, it caution said, let's not let it spread out of control. And as we speak, we're over 70,000 deaths. So I, I'm not an epidemiologist. These models have obviously been flawed. I don't know what the number would have been without radical efforts to try to control it, but it would have been multiples higher uh, than that. Um, but we've learned it's you know tri-state area, particularly particularly susceptible to it. The density of New York City, the subway system in in New York, and how how often it's used by people, all of that has made New York uh, particularly uh, prone to the this disease. Uh, and the rest of the country is not necessarily New York City. Um, so I think obviously we are far too sweeping geographically. You look at just New York State; there's just counties in New York State. Uh, that hadn't been affected at all. So did it, did it make sense to treat them as though they were uh, Queens or Brooklyn or Manhattan? No, it didn't. And then we, we did things that have a, a major downside effect, like suspending elective surgeries at hospitals. And elective surgeries, you know, it's not just knee replacements. It's uh, um, surgeries for heart ailments, for cancer. So there's a real downside health effect of that. Um, and we've had this bizarre of uh, um, consequence of in the middle of a pandemic, hospitals being emptied out uh, and having um, massively excess beds and having to furlough workers. So, plus, we've succeeded now in the goal of not getting hospitals overwhelmed, and the, the curve has bent downward, um, not as much as any of us would like, but it's clearly bent downward. And there's an enormous e- economic effect of what we've done. So, it's clearly time to, as most states are, to begin opening up again. And it's just crazy to me that you, you have one side of the political debate in the media saying if, if you realize there's a balance that now needs to be struck between economic and public health considerations, and there's some parts of the country that haven't been heavy uh, hit that hard, 
plus outdoor activity and beaches aren't a vector for spread. If you say any of that, you want to kill people and you want people to die, which, which is just insane. So, so we've gone from, I believe, a prudent approach, let's not let our, our health system get overwhelmed and destroyed, to this extremist uh, approach to if, if, if you favor activity that might create any new cases on the margin, you're a murderer. And that just strikes me as absurd. If it helps, I agree with you completely. I think that they have been so successful in instilling fear into people that it has become an irrational opposition to even beginning the process of opening up our country. And which leads me to ask, you wrote what I consider an important book, and I urge everyone to read it, The Case for Nationalism. And in that book, you give a robust, not only defense of nationalism, but you see it as a good, that it's actually a good thing that we as Americans should be nationalists. Now, during this corona pandemic, Across Europe, where there is a huge move against, there has been a huge move, and I'm not sure it still exists, against nationalism. We see countries shutting their borders, uh, Germany, France, Italy, countries that had considered themselves globalists are now turning. Do you think that the virus and the response to it is actually created a movement towards nationalism? I think it has in certain respects. We just saw in Europe with this crisis that at the end of the day, no one was really a European. They were a German or an Italian or Spanish or, or French. So they wanted to protect uh, the, uh, the, the protective gear that they had um, and use it for their people first, entirely understandable impulse. And they wanted to shut their borders against the entry of other people who might have brought this disease. So Germany, which, of course, led by Angela Merkel um, in the migrant crisis in 2015, shamed other European countries for trying to close their borders to migrants and control who came in and out of their uh, countries. Germany was even doing this during this crisis. German, Germany shut down its restricted movements across its border without coordinating with other um, European countries. So this this just shows it's natural, nat, uh, nat, natural, uh, expected, and correct for a, a government to look after its the interests of its people first. Now that doesn't mean you need to be, be aggressive towards other nations. Doesn't mean you need to bear ill will towards other nations. But even when it comes to allied nations, if you have a choice. Are these a million masks going to stay here and protect my people, or am I going to export them across the border so they can protect someone else? When there's a shortage, every government is going to, in its right mind, is going to answer, we're going to keep them here. So I, I do think this will, at least at the margins, you know, I can't speak to the left, which is uneducable on, on a lot of this stuff, but at the margins, at least, it will, this crisis will emphasize uh, the importance of borders. And the importance of when it comes to 
goods that are important to your own security or that you might need in a crisis, that it's a very good thing to be able to make those things on your own. In your book, The Case for Nationalism, and your subtitle, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free, you actually explain why nationalism, and in particular, American nationalism, is a definite good. And can you define for us what American nationalism is and does it differ from other forms of nationalism? Yeah. So first of all, let's get just real basic on the the definitions because there's a lot of confusion about this. What's patriotism and what's nationalism? So if you want to be really technical about it, patriotism comes from the Latin root patre, father, fatherland. Patriotism is a love of your own, which is, is also a very important and natural sentiment. Nationalism is the doctrine or ideal idea that a distinct people united by distinct culture, uh, distinct history, very often uh, distinct language, should govern a distinct territory. That That's what nationalism is. Uh, very often people say, um, use nationalism just to refer to all the things that are bad in national feeling, but that, that's not a uh, correct or sustainable definition. So nationalism is really defined the modern world. We have uh, a world made up of nation states whose borders are considered uh, sacrosanct, and there's an important norm r- around honoring them that, that's violated only by, by uh, you know, few malefactors. Um, so, the, so that's the basic of nationalism. American nationalism has always been seated um, with very important ideals, including individual liberty and constitutionalism. But if, if we hadn't had this strong nationalist thread running throughout our history, uh, we would have fallen apart right at the beginning, and no one would have cared very much about, um, well, there wouldn't have been a United States of America, but no one would have cared very much about it, and our ideals would have been discredited. So th- this was the key insight of the Federalist at, right at the beginning um, of the formal founding of the country, which is we need a national government worthy of the name. It needs to be limited, and it, it, there, there are certain things it just can't do, you know, and we're going to enumerate them in the Bill of Rights, but it needs to be functional and competent. And the vision of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, the original American um, nationalist, was we should become a great power on par with Great Britain. And that means, one, you have a capable national government. Two, you have a national market. You have... Um, an, an industrial and commercial-based economy, and you expand across the continent, and you you make sure there are no threats uh, on your on your borders. So we're going to chase all the remnants of of European uh, empires um, from from our immediate vicinity, and that that um, that was just crucial to what this country is and what it's become, and we wouldn't be as powerful or have had the influence. A good influence, I believe, on the whole, around the world if that hadn't happened. In uh, debates or critics of nationalism invariably say nationalism equals fascism. Can you explain why that's not the case? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think, completely wrong. So there's no doubt that, that fascists play on nationalist sentiments. 
Um, and, and I think really uh, in, any political movement um, should play on nationalist sentiments. You're kind of an idiot if you don't because it's such a, a natural um, phenomenon. But fascism is, is much more um, than just um, nationalism. It's aggressive. It is uh, often neo-imperialist, uh, the way the, the Nazis uh, were. It's based on this charismatic cult of the leader and a romance around uh, violence. Uh, this is really a phenomenon of you know, 1920s, 1930s um, Europe. A nationalism, modern nationalism, was uh, and began in the 18th century. If it had been inherently fascistic, uh, we would have had fascism much earlier. It wasn't. In fact, the the, the first modern nationalists were liberals, um, and they were fired by a vision that the nation belonged to the people, and that's I think that's the key nationalist insight. It didn't belong to monarchs. Who thought their countries, you know, were their exclusive private property, and they shouldn't be controlled by empires um, with the capital someplace else and imposing its own culture and its own language on um, on a nation. So the, the beginnings of nationalism were uh, liberal, and um, I, I think true nationalism is based on that insight that the, the country belongs to the people. And the government exists to serve the nation and the people, not the other way around, which is uh, a vision a absolutely contrary to fascism or, or any other sort of authoritarianism. In debate, uh, <clears throat> oftentimes nationalism is seen as a direct contrast to globalism. And is it is it can you be both nationalist and globalist or are they at odds with each other yeah so i think nationalism is is opposed to uh to cosmopolitanism or in tension with cosmopolitanism um you know a nationalist be believes we we belong in some deeply meaningful sense to a particular place in a particular polity. The cosmopolitan uh, believes we're citizens of the world. And yes, we may reside someplace, but we, have, we, ha we don't have a deep affiliation with that place in particular, not bounded to it. We have this disloyalty to uh, humanity uh, in, in general. So th those things are in, in tension, but I don't think they uh, need to be mutually exclusive in the sense that if you're a nationalist, okay, that means you literally, you don't care what happens to anyone around the world. It doesn't, uh, it means you, you never undertake any just humanitarian initi initiatives that aren't directly in your interest, that are just going to help people. If you have the ability to do that, that you're not going to form international, uh, alliances. Um, that, 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 that is, uh, extreme and simple minded. And in, in my view, I think that the first test of, Immigration policy, foreign policy, should just be: is it in our in our interests? Um, that's that's the the most elementary um, nationalist question, and most people ask that. You know, most people do, but there is a, a radical cosmopolitan left that doesn't want to ask that question and believes our, our borders uh, aren't really meaningful, and um, our, our foreign policy, if it's if it's 
too aligned with our national interest is nasty and small-minded. But th- but this is, you know, push comes to shove, Alan. This is a tendency, this kind of cosmopolitanism. It, it has a outsized imprint on our culture and politics because the elite, so much of the elite is beholden to it. But it's still a, a, a very small um, percentage of actual Americans think that way. And th- this was, you know, part of the, uh, uh, of, of what made the Trump phenomenon so powerful is he, uh, he, he said things in 2016 that struck a lot of the elite as completely outrageous and out of bounds. Um, not, you know, necessarily the insulting things that he, they said to people. I think, I think some of those are outrageous and out of bounds, but things like borders matter. You get a country, you have a country, you have to have a border, and we're going to build a wall to protect ours. So the elite freaks out about that, whereas most people are like, yeah, that's common sense. And he, he, he was able to um, you know, engage in this kind of political arbitrage and that, that big uh, gap uh, between uh, elite and um, the ordinary people. And I think you know, 80% of ordinary people are, you know, may not realize it, they may not you know, call themselves this, but are nationalist or have nationalist sentiments. It's this elite over on top of them that's, that's heavily cosmopolitan. In your book, The Case for Nationalism, you actually trace the concept of nationalism back to the Bible. You have a chapter called Ancient Israel Gave Us the Template of a Nation, and in that chapter, you have a subchapter, I guess. The Old Testament tells the story of the people and its land. Can you just give us an overview of the role that uh, this concept of nationalism, of people in a country, uh, develops in the Bible? Yeah. So uh, this just, to me, it just goes to how deep and powerful um, nationalism is. Now, you can't totally graft, you know, modern modern notions of nationhood uh, onto the ancient world, but they're obviously um, key key, uh, aspects of nationality are are present Um, in in the case of ancient Israel. There's there's a passage where, where God at one point basically sets out the borders of what will be Israel with, with the precision of a surveyor. Um, so th- this just created a, a key template um, for uh, uh, nationalism and for a, a nation that is special and chosen. So whenever people started uh, reading the Bible, especially in the vernacular, they got the idea, um, we're the new Israel. You know, and there are different versions uh, of this all around the world. You know, the, France, it was like we have the most Catholic king. So, so we're the new Israel. Um, England, it was like we're, we're spreading liberty to the world. We're the new, new Israel. And obviously, this was um, uh, a hugely important idea in American history. And it's from the Bible. We get the idea of the covenant, um, which is uh, um, a kind of bargain. Uh, right, and the Mayflower Compact is a, a covenant. The Constitution is a form of covenant. So that's a hugely important idea, and our our uh, national identity comes directly from the Bible. 
the idea that we're chosen people, or as Lincoln said more modestly and appropriately, an almost chosen people directly uh, from the Bible and from the Old Testament, and the idea that we're living in a promised land. Um, another another key element of our, our national identity run, runs from the very beginning, also directly uh, from uh, the Bible. So I, I don't think you can underestimate uh, the importance of the example of ancient Israel as it, as it came down to us uh, through the Bible. In this country, especially the King, King James version of the Bible. In the uh, debate over immigration policy, there is a distinction made in most people's minds between legal immigration and, quote, illegal immigration. And you in this, again, in this chapter on the beginnings of this concept of a nation, uh, you write about that the law is centrally important to Israel's nationhood. Can you somehow, can you explain to us the role of the law, the rule of law, in playing in the national debate? Yes. Yeah, so um, it's, it's the, the law is um, a, a, key, a key concept because uh, one, it's, it's a um, uh, it's a function of a particular polity um, that adopts um, the laws, and um, it, it's it's one of the reasons that um, Israel endured despite the fact that it was dispersed uh, and uh, the land was taken um, from. Israel and the temple was destroyed. The idea of the law and the text um, uh, that that was read, uh, you know, through thousands of years, uh, sustained this notion of um, nationality, even when there was no uh, formal nation, even when there wasn't a place on the map. And it's it's really one of the the near miracles of our time. That you know, thousands of years later, the Jewish people actually returned uh, to their their land. And I, I talk about this um, very moving uh, episode in in the book, where the, uh, the bones of some of the last uh, rebels against the the Roman Empire, these ancient fighters, uh, were discovered by archaeologists in Israel in the in the 70s, and they were reburied you know, with military honors, just because there was this direct connection. Uh, that had um, uh, that had never been broken, uh, despite uh, all, all the miseries um, and disasters that that had befallen the um, Jewish people since that time. So the law um, is is something that just provides a, a sense of uh, national uh, cohesion and coherence. Um, as well as language. Language is also extremely uh, important. And if, if you're people and someone can come and govern you and wipe out your language, you're probably going to stop being a people. And that, that's why I put such an important emphasis on, on the book on the English language uh, in this country. It's just a key cultural glue 
and we have to be extremely vigilant about any erosion of English uh, as a dominant language. Again, I want to compliment you on uh, this book because it is so filled with information that has been put together by you that makes a very strong case for why nationalism is a good idea. So as you just mentioned, I did not, I knew the name Bar Kokhba, um, who you just retold uh, the story about recovering uh, artifacts related to the law from Bar Kokhba's time. And I knew the story of Joan of Arc, but uh, you put these fantastic historical figures into this narrative that is so uh, compelling. You do a great job on well, educating you. at least this reader, and I'm sure everyone else well, will you. read this book. <laughs> I'm urging to do. But I'd like to just um, end our conversation by going back to how we started the conversation about uh, the coronavirus and response to it. One of the things that disturbs me the most is that governors and mayors bestowed upon themselves powers that make them autocrats in terms of determining what millions and millions of Americans should or shouldn't be doing from walking in an empty park would be um, illegal if he didn't have a face mask on, that type of stuff. And my concern is that if the rule of law is usurped or just ignored, um, uh, democracies um, have got a huge, huge problem. Uh, given the current conditions of these, again, governors and mayors running around like they have no one to answer to, but simply to dictate to. Do you have any thoughts on that subject? Well, one, it kind of depends on the, the jurisdictions. And a lot of them have you know, just very sweeping emergency powers and a, a public health emergency. But clearly, there have been uh, woeful Excesses. I mean, we've all seen the, the stories of people uh, arrested. I, I think there's something I saw uh, just last night about a, a woman in, in Texas being arrested and uh, sentenced to seven days in jail for opening her nail salon or, or whatever it was. And there have been mm -hmm. cases of people arrested in parks. And But what's been most disturbing is the restrictions on religious services. And this is something where there, there's been pushback. Uh, you had a drive-in religious service like two weeks ago or whatever it was. And I forget exactly where it went. Now I'm fuzzy on everything, Alan. It was Tennessee or someplace. But uh, the, the, the governor, you know, banned it. And uh, the judge said, no, you know, this is, this is a country of the First Amendment. And I thought one of the more uh, stark um, moments in the public debate over all this was a week or two ago, when Governor Murphy of New Jersey was on with Tucker Carlson and Tucker asked him what authority 
he has under the, the First Amendment to suspend um, uh, religious services. And the governor said, well, that's above my pay grade. Well, I mean, he's the governor of the state, right? Who, who's above him in, in the hierarchy of the state? And th- this is the key thing about constitutionalism. It's not, we shouldn't be relying just on judges to enforce it. Everyone in the country should be suffused with a sense of uh, how important the Constitution is and do everything they, they can to honor its letter and its spirit, even if they're not getting slapped down by a federal judge somewhere. And we've had public officials around the country falling down on that basic task. I agree. And I'm also very disturbed about the closing down of the churches and synagogues and places of worship of all sorts. And here in New York, two days before Easter, the mayor of New York actually got on the tube and threatened people and priests and if they went to church on Easter Sunday. <laughs> that, that's a no-no. Uh, you will get fined $1,000 if we catch you going to church or you could possibly end up in jail. Very disturbing. And uh, and uh, anyway, we'll, we will get out of this one as well. Rich, um, I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing your thoughts today. And I also want to once again urge people, whether you're for or against nationalism, read this book because it's not a knee-jerk book in the sense it's uh, Rich clearly did a lot of thinking and research and it's it's been a, it is quite an experience to read the book and learn from the book. So thank you again, Rich. And anytime you want to come back on our podcast, we'd love to have you. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. I really enjoyed it. God bless and stay safe. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.